Ladies and gentlemen, I want you to meet Ernst Lubitsch, our director. Uh, the man who gave you a garbo in Ninochka who made you laugh, and who now gives you a Morgan who makes you laugh. I hope. Yes, I hope so too. Welcome to Season 2 of How Would Lubitsch Do It? A podcast in which we discuss the works of director Ernst Lubitsch, one film at a time. It's September 1923, and Season 2 draws to a close as Stefan Joisler joins us to discuss The Flame. Thanks once again to everyone who's joined us over the past 11 weeks. If you'd like to help other people find the show, I encourage you to rate and review it on the podcast app of your choice. We'll be back in July. Come visit ErnstCast.com if you'd like show notes, resources as to where you might find the films we'll be discussing, or just to say hi. Before we start, a disclaimer. Over the course of the past two seasons, we have seen our fair share of obscure, hard-to-find movies. And even then, The Flame, or De Flamme, is an outlier. You cannot see this movie. It is, for all intents and purposes, lost. Only a quarter of it survives, and as of this recording, Stefan and the Munich Film Museum's reconstruction featuring this quarter is not publicly available. With all that said, I believe the conversation between Stefan and I is well worth listening to if you, like virtually everyone else living, have not seen The Flame. I hope you enjoy it. Hello, everyone. We are here with Stefan Droisler. Stefan, do you want to tell our listeners a little bit about yourself? What's your interest in Lubitsch? What's your connection to him? And what do you do? Oh, well, I'm the director of the Film Museum München, the Munich Film Museum. And I am doing the programming in the museum and I'm restoring films. And one of my projects was also to care for Lubitsch because I loved his films all the time, already before I came to Munich. So I was always collecting, especially I tried to get information about the lost Lubitsch films. I did a lot of research, especially on the question, why did Lubitsch leave Germany? How did it come that he left UFA and finally ended up in Hollywood? There were a lot of mysteries and questions which were not very clear. Mm -hmm. And especially the two films he did in this period, the loves of and the flame survived only in fragmentary states when I started my research. But I also look still for material on other Lubitsch films, which I would really like to find, like Rausch with Asta Nielsen, the film he did before Madame Dubarry, or The Patriot, where I have already several little bits and pieces and collected some photos, but the photos always show only Emil Jannings and there is no screenplay available so far. I only have a cue sheet with the continuity and so I was not able to bring all these elements in a good order. It was not like this with a flame. The Flame was also one of the films where only one reel exists. And here I could collect many, many documents and photos and bring them in an order so that you can see a reconstructed version, which gives you at least a feeling for the film. You can understand the fragments and you see the style of Lubitsch, which in my eyes makes it to a key work in his career. The Flamme because it is very close to his American style and not so much anymore to his German films as we know them. It is very rough humor and the flame is already the sophisticated Lubitsch as we know him from the American movies. At this point, Lubitsch had expressed his desire to make smaller films. He saw Loves of the Pharaoh as the end of one part of his career, right? He had that quote, I think I read in the Amon book, how many times can you direct thousands of people? I think <laughs> you have to see this all in a context, especially with the German film industry. The German film industry had a big development during the First World War because people wanted to see movies and they didn't want to see any more French movies because it was the enemy. And the French films were dominating the German cinemas. So the German production developed very well 
And then the military realized that film industry is important for propaganda. And UFA was founded in 1917. And they put a lot of money into the productions of this new company, UFA. And Lubitsch, who had started during the war with his film career, could get bigger and bigger projects. It is very strange to see that in 1918, when the Germans already lost the war, there were big super productions prepared in Germany. One of them was Carmen by Lubitsch, but also the other directors, Joe Mai and others, it was also the film Opium. They were all shot during the war in 1918 with hundreds and thousands of people. One film, at least, I can prove uh, they shot it already with two different negatives, so the film was meant to be exported. Mm. You can say that the German film industry knew when the war is lost, they can try to conquer the world with films. They wanted to transport German culture into the world. Otherwise, it is not understandable why these super productions were produced with different negatives. And in the beginning, it was very difficult to export the German films, especially to the American market, because Americans didn't want to see German movies. So Madame Dubarry had a big advantage that it was announced as a Polish film with a Polish main actress and a Polish director. Mm. This was so successful that suddenly Lubitsch came into this mode to do another big period piece which should be bigger than Dubarry, and he did Anna Boleyn, and then came The Loves of Pharaoh. And The Loves of Pharaoh was meant for him to open the door to America. Passion was so successful in New York that the name of Lubitsch was suddenly famous. He could get all the budgets he wanted to have in Germany. And with The Loves of Pharaoh, he tried to, to convince Americans that he is the greatest director in the world. It's very interesting that Lubitsch came the first time to America. It's the first print of Loves of Pharaoh, December 1921. Mm -hmm. And it was maybe even his first time that he saw American movies. In Germany, the American movies were not shown during the war and in the first years after the war. And he was really flashed by films by Harold Lloyd and Charlie Chaplin but also by Stroheim and Griffiths. So he used his time to go to cinema. And when he came back, then he said, after having seen the standard of American movies, that the time of the super productions is gone and that he should change his style. Mm -hmm. Woman of Paris is often cited as the film that changed his style, and that's a gross oversimplification. He was already moving towards that clearly with this film, which is it's a small chamber piece with just four significant roles. It is not that Lubitsch didn't have done it before. Mm -hmm. He did it in Rausch. Mm -hmm. This is one of the big losses. You also have his Shakespeare adaptations in Bavaria. So you have Kohlheisel's Daughters and Romeo and Juliet in the Snow, which are very rustic and small, too. They're very broad, though. But they are not so really sophisticated. No. <laughs> I would count them to the German comedies. This is rough humor. They are very funny, definitely. Mm -hmm. But this is not the stylish Lubitsch. No. But in Rausch, when you read the reviews about it and see the remarks of Asta Nielsen about it, it was a stylish film. And it was the first step. And The Flame was the second step mm -hmm. for Lubitsch to concentrate on a Kammerspiel with a very simple story. There's not a complicated plot at all. We have very few characters. It's only this young composer who falls in love with a lady who is a prostitute and he has to find out. He marries her, but the relation has problems in the end. The prostitute kills herself and says, I belong to the street. She jumps out of a window and is killed on the street. So it is a very simple story, but it is a story of psychological undertones. And Lubitsch could do what he named Filmdichtung. That means poetic film with close-ups, with looks, with all these things that the communication doesn't need intertitles, but that it is expressed completely visually. Mm. This is a great thing of the Flamme.
It's worth emphasizing how lost the film is. There's only one reel, so there's double-digit minutes there. I think there was, what, less than 20 minutes in the version that's been reconstructed. And yet, I would still find myself getting caught up in the story, <laughs> even though the vast majority of the film is told with descriptive titles taken from varying sources and reviews and cue sheets and even playbills with the film. And yet I found myself by the end completely invested in these characters. So I can only imagine how compelling it would have been actually in its full version. Yeah, well, I'm quite proud that it works quite well. It is difficult in the first, I think, 30 minutes. You only see stills and photos of the film. Mm -hmm. And then suddenly Peter van Bach described it as a shock. Then suddenly you see living pictures, the characters start to live, and then you are in it immediately. And then the last 10 minutes are not a problem because in the end we see again only photos. But this one reel is pretty good. It is so well done that you are immediately in it when you have this information from the opening. Mm -hmm. I think it works very well. This is always a big thing when you work with fragments, how to reconstruct them. It is not just puzzling together in an academic way. I always want to catch the emotional point of the film and have to find a way how to express it with as little text as possible, how I can connect it with the photos I have, how I can keep the audience already in the film. And I don't want to have an academic approach where I do it maybe in a more complete way, but that you cannot get the emotional level of the film. And I think it works and it needs this music. The music is also very important for me and I do such a film. Oh, certainly. And I would love to go deeper into the process behind the restoration of these two films to spell things out for our audience here. You were responsible and the Munich Film Museum for restoring both this film and The Loves of the Pharaoh, the previous episode we recorded with Kristen Thompson. Mm -hmm. Both films are varying degrees of complete. How much of Loves of the Pharaoh remains? It's what, an hour? No, 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 no. The Loves of Pharaoh is nearly complete. Mm -hmm. It is only 10% which may be missing. Mm. I think I have found another still, which is not in the reconstruction. Oh, wow. But <laughs> it is not worth to redo it because of this one still in bad quality. But, you know, when you work on such films, <laughs> the work is never finished. Oh, no. It's always possibilities that you find something more or you get more ideas. Love Safaro was an interesting example. It started with Enopatalas uh, finding material in the Moscow Film Archive and he had the screenplay. So he put titles to bridge the uh, missing parts, but he didn't work properly, I would say. Hmm. He didn't study all the reviews because in the screenplay there was a scene that Harry Lietzke is caught and he's thrown in a well and there's an alligator and he's nearly eaten by an alligator. So mm -hmm. Enno took the scene from the screenplay and described it. But then when I was looking for this film and looking for photos, I never found a photo with an alligator. <laughs> when I read all these reviews, then I found out that they changed it during the shooting and now he is put on a big stone and there's another big stone to smash him. Yeah. So this was not in the screenplay. So with this information, we had to rework this reconstruction because it was definitely wrong. So I only will tell you that you can always find something that you realize your imagination. I think such a reconstruction always is an imagination of this film. When I take all the puzzle pieces together, then I imagine how the film was and then I can start my reconstruction. I think when you see The Loves of Pharaoh, it is the complete film. Mm nearly the complete film. You cannot expect that something is wrong in it. Mm -hmm. The flame, we have only 25% of the film. So you cannot compare the two cases. It's a very different thing. And in Loves of Pharaoh, we have the original score, which gave us even a hint about the structure of the film and the length of scenes and titles and so on and so on. And how does that work? Were the full music sheets and everything for the original score just there and then your team orchestrated it? Or what was the creative process behind that? Oh, well, this is a big thing. <laughs> you have to find a conductor and not only a conductor, a composer who can read the score and who can arrange it for the orchestra. He has even to make it fitting to this not complete film. It costs a lot of money. So <laughs> in this case, it was necessary to have some money from uh, television stations. 
managed to get an orchestra to record it. This is something bigger than the film restoration and more costly, of course. I cannot go through all the steps. We can <laughs> do it, but it is... It's extensive. For me, it is interesting that Loves of Pharaoh is one of the few films for which they wrote an original score. Mm -hmm. You have to see that today the people don't know that in German cinemas, in most cases, there was not original score written. It was just a compilation of music which was put together by the conductor of the theater. And I think there are only a few dozens of films which got an original score. These were the super productions, very big films. In Germany, there was all the Thief of Bechtet, the original score was performed. But in 99% of the movies, there was just the conductor of the theater. And you have to imagine that it was an extremely stressful job. <laughs> He was conducting the orchestra during the week with three to four performances every day. And parallel, he was preparing for the next week. The next film had to watch it somehow. He didn't have a video. He was just watching it if he was lucky to watch it from the screen and to make some notes and to select some music pieces. He had to copy the notes of the pieces for the orchestra. He had practically no time for a dress rehearsal <laughs> because the musicians were always performing. And so the next week he had to do it somehow. I think it was maybe sometimes better not to go to the first screening, but in the second or third day, when the orchestra was a little more familiar with the film, I think they developed the track with the performances somehow. And this every week. <laughs> it is unbelievable how it was done in the old times. And here, such a film, which had a real composer, he was also under stress, he had very little time to do the score. But in this case, there was clear that they had at least a dress rehearsal before the official premiere in the evening. So it was a little better. But there were only a few German films who had such scores. It was Inibelungen with Fritz Lang. It started, I think, in 1913 with The Student of Prague. And then in 1917, Christoph Hummel did a score. There were not so many original scores. And today, very often, You see in the film books or in the database a name for the score of the film. And it doesn't mean that there was a real score. It was only the conductor of the premiere theater who did his compilation, but only in this premiere theater. And it was not sent out to other theaters. So you can practically not say that it was a real score. Oh, wow. It was much too expensive and too much time. So they did it only for very big films. Mm. It's interesting the impact that's had on all the films so far we've covered where so much of the experience is determined by was there an original score at the time that has been recreated in this case or were there notes or do you have a talented modern composer <laughs> making something interesting in the case of I think Madame Dubarry had a fully new score and that was quite good but then you have something like The Doll where I struggled with that score on the only available version at least in my region. And so I actually watched the Flam with, I don't think the version I had had a soundtrack at all. So I just listened to Camille Sansan's symphony <laughs> during it. I look forward to hearing your work on and your team's work on that one when I get a chance. That's all very interesting. It will be released, I think, in the end of this year or in the next year on DVD. The English version of the Flame with English titles in it and with a score. Then it will be out. Mm. When I restore a fragment, then it is always very important for me to get into the rhythm, to find a rhythm for the film. Mm -hmm. This was also important for Lubitsch, by the way. That is the reason why he was so good. Lubitsch always was editing his films by himself, already in the German time, even in Hollywood, when he was one of the few directors who had access to the editing room. And he insisted on it. <laughs> and Lubitsch was very fast. He was editing a film in three days. And even Loves of Pharaoh, he edited in less than seven days. And he didn't have an editing table. There are photos of him. There's a lot of little reels on the table. And to have a big sister, he was looking against the lights <laughs> and knew exactly how to edit a film. He knew it already when he was shooting, that the pieces fit together perfectly. That this was a big ability of him to understand how he would edit already during the shooting. 
And he listened to music. And I think it's important that you have such a musical and a rhythmic feeling for good film direction. Mm -hmm. And then you can work like him. And for me, it is also important to get a right rhythm. And there are sometimes little details, even in my text tables, which are important. So I talk to the musicians, how he has to bridge the things, where he has to put an accent on. So it is very, very, yeah, very important. Also like tinting the movies. When I know that the film was tinted, then I also use tints, which give you an idea to be led through the film. There are films for which the tinting is extremely important, and there are films that are only colorful, and the tints are not that important. They work uh, as well in black and white as in color. Mm -hmm. Certain kinds, it is important to tint them. As far as something like Loves of the Pharaoh, occasionally even the tinting will have a little disclaimer at the start of the restoration that I watched, like Carmen had one where basically they said, we know it was tinted and we are interpreting because we don't know which scenes were tinted what color. So this is all imagination. For Loves of the Pharaoh, did you have specific notes on colors to use and such, or how much was interpretive? Well, we had colored nitrate. Yeah. So I only heard now from Peter Bagroff that in the Eastman house, they found one of my favorite early Ludwig film, I Don't Want to Be a Man. And they found a colored nitrate. And so you can tint this film now according to this nitrate. Oh. It's very obvious that the night scenes were blue and the interior is a different color and so on. I always was thinking that I should tint it. Hmm. And I believe if I would have tinted it, it would have not be so wrong from the original tinting. But let's see when they have restored this film in the near future, then we will see how the original tints were. Oh, that's really exciting. The German films, most of them were tinted at the time. I think that the flame was also tinted, but I have no indication. I have no proof so far, so I don't start to tint. If it would have been mentioned in a review or anywhere else that it was tinted, then I maybe would have tried it. Mm. With the tint, it is a little bit like with the music. When I restored the film Helena Has a Fall of Troy, we had five different prints from five different countries, and two of them were tinted. And in only in one of them was the last scene, the fall of Troy, which takes place in the night, and then the town goes into flames. And I wanted to tint it red, red for fire, which is also dramaturgically very important in the end to have something red is very often in these movies. Mm -hmm. But in this print, it was tinted blue, even in the fire, because it took place in the night. <laughs> and I found it, even from the dramaturgy, not so convincing. But I thought I have to be faithful. I found only this nitrate, and it was blue. So I put the red out, <laughs> and it was shown in German television. It was blue. One day later, I found a nitrate. In fact, I knew about it before, but the archive couldn't find it. And they found it, so I went into the archive. And there was this last scene also in this nitrate. And in this nitrate, it was tinted red. Yeah. Exactly the moment when the fire broke out, so as I wanted to do it. So this gave me the idea that the tinting is not everywhere the same. Mm -hmm. And I found certain German silent films from different countries which had very different tintings. So you can see, as an example, another film from the same period of Lubitsch. It is by Joe Mai, The Indian Tom, which is now out on Blu-ray. We have a print which has complete different tintings. Because the Blu-ray is referring to tinted nitrate, which was found in Czechoslovakia. And we had to restore the film from a nitrate which was found in Paris. So in France and Czechoslovakia, they had very different tinting. Mm. In some cases, you find in all the prints the same tints, like in Downhill by Hitchcock's existing tinted print from the Netherlands has exactly the same tints as they are described in reviews from Great Britain. But in other cases, we have different tints, and the tints are as different as the music was in the theaters. And so I make use of the tints when it is necessary to make the film a little easier to understand. 
when I work with fragments, I have to use a lot of tricks to make this film understandable to the audience. It's interesting you mentioned that certain films, the meaning is often lost without the tinting, especially when it comes to things like night scenes. The film Myra from Berlin really suffers from this. One has to consciously remind oneself what time of day it is, for example, and the mood is lost when you have these clearly daytime shot scenes meant to be in moonlight. It's a major artistic element that is often completely missing. For us, it was always the example Nosferatu, why the vampire is always walking in the sunlight. Hmm. They filmed it in the sun to tint it blue. So it was a blue night, beautiful in the tinted print, but in the black and white, it doesn't make much sense. You see in such cases, the filmmakers knew that the film will be tinted and they didn't care. They couldn't shoot at night in the teens and early 20s sometimes because film material was not good enough. So they needed light for the shooting and they did it because they knew it will be tinted blue and everybody will know now it is night. (laughs) It is interesting how the whole blue means night thing is omnipresent in cinema history. (laughs) We still have it. At this point, I'd love to get into the history of IFA and Lubitsch's two trips to the U.S. at this time and all the upheaval, because just to quote the beginning of your article in Film History, the journal, one episode in Ernst Lubitsch's career is covered only vaguely in books and articles devoted to his life in films, the years 1920 and 21, just before he left Germany to work in America. I'd love to dig into this quite a bit because this was a period of massive upheaval and a lot of almost non-starters in Lubitsch's career. He starts his own company as a subsidiary of another company. There is the first Dark Studios in Berlin. Everyone's moving to America. By everyone, I mean certain high-profile stars. You have to see it as this big (laughs) battle between America and Germany. The Americans wanted to conquer the German market and the Germans wanted to conquer the American market. (laughs) And this is very interesting, not only during the silent era, also going up until now. And always after the war, there were big discussions about it in America. They didn't want to have German films shown in America. When Caligari was shown in New York, it was a success. When they showed it in Los Angeles, after one day they had to stop because of protests by the American film workers against it. They said that the Germans, this inflation, have an advantage Mm -hmm. and can shoot films with many, many extras because they don't have to pay them properly. And so the Germans will destroy the American film industry Mm -hmm. when all these films are led into the American market. This was a situation that, on the other hand, the Germans didn't let the American films into the German market. The German film industry loomed up during the First World War, hmm. and there was no need to let American films into the German cinemas. The first Chaplin film in German cinema after the war was shown in autumn 1921. Can you imagine? Chaplin was a big star that people could read articles about him, but they couldn't see any of his films because there was a barrier and the Americans were so upset why the American movies could not go into the German market, but some German films suddenly went to the American market. And the enormous success of Madame Dubarry, which was the most successful film ever, and it was shown in December in 1920. And it was so successful that even Griffiths hired the other big theater in New York and did a re-release of Birth of a Nation to prove that he is more successful. <laughs> but the Lubitsch film got the better figures because he could do more screenings in a day. Birth of a Nation was too long. It was also always sold out. But the Lubitsch film hit all the records. And then suddenly everybody wanted to buy German movies. <laughs> The major studios bought German movies. There were more than 100 negatives were sent to America for the American market. And then they found out that there were only very few of these German films which were really successful outside of New York. So Caligari, as an example, was much too sophisticated. It was successful in New York, maybe in Los Angeles, but it would not have succeeded in the other towns. One of the few films which really was successful also outside the big towns was Der Golem. Mm -hmm. But most of the films were disappointing. And famous Lasky players, first they thought it is Lubitsch. But of course, the people didn't go because of the director into the movies. They went because of the star of Pola Negri. 
And Lubitsch, when he went to America with the loves of Pharaoh, he really believed that he would get offers for good contracts to major studio. But at the time already, it was clear that Paramount was more interested to get Polanyi, the only star which is missing in loves of Pharaoh. Loves of Pharaoh, Lubitsch could get everything because this film was produced with American money. So there was no limit that Lubitsch could use. And Christine will talk about it. For the first time, this American lamps, mm -hmm. which he also used for the flame, where he had the possibility to have the American lighting in his movies. So Lubitsch could get the three male top stars to have a film with Paul Wegener, Emil Jannings and Harry Liedtke playing together. This was unbelievable. But he wanted to have Paula Negri for the female part and he couldn't get her. And this is a problem of Loves of Pharaoh. When you imagine that there would be Polanyi in it, <laughs> the film would have been definitely more vivid and maybe much more successful. As it is, Yennings definitely steals it. <laughs> I must admit, I was hooting and hollering when he came back because yeah. I was like, yes, we get more of him. It was lovely. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, by the way, it was also important just to come back a little bit to the flame. I was astonished when we restored the film, but it was an American article reporting from the shooting of The Flame where we could read that the film had two different endings and that Lubitsch was shooting two different endings. Mm -hmm. He did it after his experience with Loves of Pharaoh. As an American distributor just changed the ending to have a happy ending in the film. So they cut away the last minutes. And so Lubitsch didn't want to have anybody else to edit his film. So for Loves of Pharaoh, he offered the happy ending for the American market. But when the film finally was released as Montmartre under this title in America, they cut out about 500 meters. Lubitsch is complaining that the film was totally butchered. You know this letter he wrote to Weinberg in 1947, in which he names his favorite films. He is naming his favorite comedies and he is naming the two favorite German serious films, Rausch and Die Flamme, but he's mentioning that Die Flamme was totally butchered in America. Mm -hmm. The shooting of the happy ending didn't prevent the film from being cut down. So nevertheless, going back to Eva, the idea of America was to get a foot into the German market when they could not import the American movies, was to produce the films with their own company. And they called their companies European Film Alliance, Europäische Film Alliance, short Eva. One clarification I want to make, because this is probably very confusing for English language listeners such as me. There's UFA, which is the Universum Film Aktengelerschaft, which I butchered the pronunciation of, but Universum. That was the state-run company for German films. It had a near monopoly. That started in 1917 and continued on for decades and decades in various forms. And this new company is, as you mentioned, the Europasche Film Alliance which again, sorry for butchering that, is IFA, which is a fully new company that is a collaboration between German and American interests. Is that about right? The UFA, you have to be a little careful because the real UFA only existed until the Third Reich when it was under the influence of Hitler. Mm -hmm. And then after the war, there were companies with this name, but it was not the UFA anymore. Mm -hmm. And the UFA was a military project to put several companies together in a kind of union to have a strong company. And so it was the biggest production company in Germany in the 20s. And the IFA was money from America. <laughs> and there were Samuel Rachman and Ben Blumenthal, the two businessmen who were leading the IFA at a certain moment. This is American money to get all the big names under contract. Mm -hmm. So they got Ola Negri, but they got the directors, Lubitsch. They got also Emil Jannings, Max Reinhardt, who didn't do any film under the contract, <laughs> <laughs> but took the money. And Paul Wegener and Joe Mai and so on. They tried everybody who was successful at UFA to give him a bigger contract and promising a kind of independence. So Lubitsch thought after Jufa made so much money with Madame Dubarry, 
And Lubitsch didn't get any of this money. It was all the profit for the dealers between and for UFA when it was released in America. That when he does with his producer, Paul Davidson from Pagu, this was a company Lubitsch was working before UFA was founded. And this Pagu was one of the founding members of UFA. And Paul Davidson was one of the leading producers at UFA. He left together with Lubitsch to found the Ernst Lubitsch film production. IFA was an umbrella company with a lot of little companies under the name of the director or the star to produce the movies. So Lubitsch got all the money to do the Lots of Ferraro. Hmm. And for Eva, he also produced in his Hans Lubitsch production company, The Flame. But unfortunately, this whole project, Eva, because especially Samuel Rachman wasted the money. <laughs> he didn't see any limits. He gave everybody promises. So the Jefa collapsed. And that is the reason why The Flame was not released in cinemas. Mm. For one year, the first American movie, Rosita by Lubitsch, was already out before The Flame was released in Germany. Mm. This is also the reason why The Flame, it was an old Lubitsch film when it was released. <laughs> Why it is so little known. But this was a moment when the whole thing broke together and Lubitsch finally had to realize that Jehefa only brought Ola Negri to America. Immediately after the last day of shooting of the flame, she left for America. And Lubitsch had to stay and wait in Germany. He was quite frustrated. <laughs> he thought that he should be invited as a big director. And so he was waiting and waiting and realizing that Paramount was not so much interested and even a little afraid because Lubitsch was a German. And they were afraid that there would be protests against the German. Polanyi was Polish. <laughs> And so she didn't have this problem. And finally, he got a phone call by Mary Pickford to shoot a film with her. And then he went over when there were protests against him when he arrived in California. But Mary Pickford took it. She accepted it and let him shoot. Mm -hmm. There were other problems that Lubitsch, of course, didn't want to do the movie Harry Pickford wanted to do, but this is another story. <laughs> yeah, the situation with Rosita and Pickford is its own fascinating thing, too. <laughs> For me, it is interesting, and I always said one day I will do a retrospective of Lubitsch showing only his non-comedies. Hmm. Because for me, it is always amazing that some of the best works of Lubitsch and the films he really liked when he was asked what are his best films, very often he mentioned his non-comedies. And the moment when he had the possibility to do a serious film, he did it. So I always have the feeling that Lubitsch wanted to be taken more serious. And that is the reason why he shot from time to time these serious films. Mm. But he was much more successful when he did a funny film. And in the very end of his career, he realized that he had to combine it. The serious theme uh, to put it into a comedy. And then you have these wonderful films like Shop Around the Corner or To Be or Not To Be. Mm -hmm. where he wanted to say something. The serious films like Rausch, like Die Flamme, like The Patriot, like The Man I Killed, a film I really appreciate, mm. especially at this time when he was shooting it. But you can also put some of his melodramatic films like Old Heidelberg or Angel. It's not a real comedy. Mm -hmm. Heidelberg might be my favorite of his silent works. That film is very close to my heart. <laughs> also to me. And it is not a comedy. You cannot say it is a comedy. It is a tragedy in the end. It's a big melodrama. Mm -hmm. It has this tone, though, because it is so funny. There's so much levity in the film. It has wonderful ideas, of course. Oh, yes. One question I have is, what did the situation in Weimar, Germany, especially Berlin, did that have an impact on the fate of IFA, especially with the height of hyperinflation in mid-22 and instability? Did that also serve to undermine IFA? Yeah, yes, of course it was a problem. I think so. And it changed the German film industry also. Because at the time, it was easy to do these super productions. And when you read the shooting of Loves of Pharaoh, there were strikes of the extras from day to day. You wanted to have more because <laughs> <laughs> the money had no value the next day. So it was very difficult to handle all these things. 
And Siegfried Krakauer wrote, when you could sell one of these films against hard currency to a small country like Switzerland, you can already make a big profit as a producer. Mm -hmm. So at this time, suddenly everybody in Germany wanted to do super productions. Even directors like Richard Oswald, who failed with these big period pieces. And some of these films were hardly shown in German cinemas. They were mainly done for the export. Mm -hmm. And so many companies collapsed. And especially the whole breakdown of EFA was connected with that some of these companies which were put together in EFA, they could not produce anymore the next film. So it was a quite tragic thing when you see like Paul Wegener who did Living Buddhas, now a lost film, mm -hmm. only fragments exist. Many people lost a lot of money and didn't produce anymore after 1923. You have to see the whole Eva thing also in the context of this. Paramount was only interested to get the big names and to keep the Germans down, not to conquer the American market. Mm. And when they realized that there is no danger anymore from the German films, then immediately stopped putting <laughs> money into the German market. And they tried, and the barrier fell down. In 22, you could see more and more American movies in German films. There were several moments in the history. The next one was Metropolis, when the UFA got in financial trouble with Metropolis. Mm -hmm. Then American money came in under the conditions that the UFA had to distribute American movies from the American major studios. <laughs> then came the sound film, and the Germans were happy that now the Germans would want to see German movies and not American movies. So the Americans are out of the market, they believe. Americans did language versions in German, even Laurent Hardy, Peter Garbo, they had to speak mm. German to have German films for the German market. Then the Nazis didn't allow the Americans to be in the German market. And this post-war story is also always a battle of the Germans not to let the Americans in. <laughs> With the top 10 until the 1970s, the German films were always a majority. Only in the mid-70s, Suddenly, the American film had 50% of the German market, and now we are with 80% or something like this. And it started thanks to Steven Spielberg and the blockbusters of the 70s, <laughs> that the German films didn't have the majority anymore in the German cinemas. So it's quite interesting to see the film history from this point of view as an economic battle. Yeah, it helps inform a lot of what we're seeing here, where the strategy of the Americans switches from competition to co-opting, right? They're abetting a brain drain, right, of the big celebrities and talents. And this would continue, right? There's the famous list of German directors who emigrated, yes. who heavily changed Hollywood. But this was a fault by the Germans. That they kicked them out, mm -hmm. that they had to flee Germany. Of course, this was an immense loss of creativity in the 30s, <laughs> maybe a little bit like Russia now, mm -hmm. when so many people had to flee, of course. And it was refreshing the American industry, of course. I did a little snooping around the careers of Lubitsch's key collaborators at this time, especially how they fared in the 30s. And it's interesting how it all worked out. Osios mm Walda, -hmm. like everyone else, started her own production company in the mid-20s and had an affair with the German crown prince and then escaped Germany in the 30s for obvious reasons, went to Prague and died destitute, apparently, in 1947. But her career already went down after she didn't switch with Lubitsch anymore. Mm-hmm. So her films were not that successful anymore. She was a big star in the teens, mm -hmm. but not in the end of the 20s anymore. But okay, this was Ossi Oswalda. What were the other names? This is a great opportunity to be corrected on all these, then uh, I welcome it. Harry Liedke stayed in Germany and was killed by Red Army soldiers in 1945, tragically defending his wife. Emil Janning's probably the most famous story of these. He went to America, won an Oscar, went back to Germany in the sound era, became a high-profile Nazi. <laughs> and that's a career now marked by that infamy. Theodore Sparkle, Lubitsch's cinematographer, moved to the UK. Mm -hmm. 
and then moved to France, famously worked with Renoir, and then to the USA, had a massively distinguished career, which I'd find incredibly cool. Kurt Richter, the production designer of a lot of these films, including Loves of the Pharaoh, apparently retired from film in the late 20s at the advent of sound and appears to have stayed in Germany, but I know little about him and have been unable to find much. Hans Crawley followed Lubitsch to America, where they continued working together until Hans ran away with Lubitsch's wife, Lenny. But we also have to say that the day after the shooting of the flame, Lubitsch married his wife. Yes. They had this wedding ceremony in the set of parents <laughs> of the flame. It barely felt like more than a lunch break, their wedding, which I think is very indicative of Lubitsch's general attitude towards his relationships. Well, well of course, for him, the work was first. Mm-hmm. And this marriage or his private things were only in the second row. This was, I think, all his life. Mm -hmm. And that pattern of his significant others running away with people he knows, he was preoccupied constantly with cinema. Are there any other major collaborators who I'm missing here? Well, I think very important is, as you can read in my article at Film History, Paul Davidson, Mm -hmm. his producer, who was pushing him into this position. He was a producer and brought Lubitsch in this position to be the biggest director in Germany. And he was with Lubitsch together to found the Lubitsch company. And Lubitsch wanted just to go to America and he didn't care for Paul Davidson. Paul Davidson then tried to work with Emil Jannings to do the Emil Jannings production. But also Jannings was more interested in his personal career. So Davidson formed finally his own production company, which was not very successful. He visited Lubitsch once in America and came back and lost all his illusions that he could also end up in America. Mm -hmm. Then he founded his own company, which was not successful. And he was already in bad health when Lubitsch came to Germany. He didn't visit Davidson. He wrote him a letter on his ship on the way back to America. And a few days later, Paul Davidson killed himself. Oh, wow. So this is the most tragic story in my eyes. This is really a victim, in a way, who was expecting or hoping that Lubitsch would take him with him to America. I wonder what that relationship was like. I don't know much about how Lubitsch's attitude towards his collaborators or his, in this case, business associates. I guess there's no way of knowing, but had the relationship soured. Kelly is the most interesting personal story because he was very close to Lubitsch and they wrote for many, many years the screenplays together. And after this uh, little catastrophe, <laughs> Lubitsch never worked with him again anymore and Kelly could not survive. He was not successful alone without Lubitsch in Hollywood. Mm-hmm. So obviously Lubitsch was quite strict when he felt betrayed by somebody. You can also say that his relation to Polanyi was not that good. When he was shooting the flame, Polanyi had already her contract in America and she played the big shot and let Lubitsch wait on the set. She came late mm-hmm. and so on. She was a diva. They shot again once in America. And I would love to know exactly how this relation was. The two met again in America I think Polanyi was convinced that she is a much bigger star than Lubitsch and that she played it on the set. They didn't shoot again. They did only one film together. Mm -hmm. And I don't know how it worked. As far as I know, they reconciled during a chance meeting on the set of The Marriage Circle and then made Forbidden Paradise, which is the pseudo Catherine the Great film. And that apparently was also a very trying experience where Negri was also, by the reports, not the easiest to work with necessarily. She became (laughs) too famous. I think at the beginning it was easier to work with her. I don't know. I don't know. (laughs) Dubic worked with many actors several times. Felix Bressart, who is one of these wonderful actors in the small parts in some of his sound films. Obviously, Lubitsch liked him. He's one of these Russian commissaires in Ninochka. He's <laughs> a stooge in To Be or Not To Be. Yeah, he's Greenberg, yeah. He was a great comedian. He just restored one of his biggest success, a private secretary from 1931, one of the early sound films. Oh, wow. I would love to see that sometime. It was shown last week at MOBA. Oh, my gosh. I'll admit, Felix Brassart is maybe my favorite character actor from that whole time. His three roles in three of my favorite films ever. I sometimes throw on Shop Around the Corner just for him. He is the loveliest, loveliest presence on those films. Yeah. 
So I, I would look forward to seeing that when I can. That's amazing. He was a big star in the early 30s in Germany, but he has to leave as a Jew. Mm -hmm. And so he had always main parts. He was not one for secondary parts. Mm -hmm. But in private secretary, he has a second part. <laughs> so I don't know. There are several collaborators who work with Lubitsch, even Bressart. He didn't shoot with Lubitsch in Germany. No, he was not an actor. Maybe they were together in Berlin at the theater and knew each other from the time. Mm -hmm. I don't know now in this moment. Once Lubitsch has left Germany, he only visits twice again. I believe. Yes. And never after the war, probably largely because of his health. After World War II, he was never in great health. Do we know much about his attitude towards Germany after he left? There's obviously to be or not to be in his staunch opposition to the Nazis. Lubitsch always felt to be a German, and he always spoke this wonderful German accent, like me, a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> but Lubitsch was known for it. He always ate his schnitzel at lunch, and he was caring for other Germans, even the emigrants. So he was always together with the Germans. He filmed with Marlene Dietrich and others. So he was always in relation with Germany. He didn't want to go back. He couldn't go back. He was one of the main targets of the Nazi propaganda. He was one of these delicate and for them not German, his jokes and his sophistication they didn't like at all. Mm -hmm. So he was on the list of the typical Jew for Jewish entertainment. So he had no chance to come back to Germany and to do something in Germany. There were others. Phil Rich Lang, he could have done a film in Nazi Germany, but he didn't want to work under Goebbels and so on. But Lubitsch came back. But Lubitsch always had a desire to go to America because everything was great in America. Mm -hmm. And even in Germany, on the set, he was not allowed to smoke. He wanted to have chewing gum. <laughs> During the shooting of Flames, the secretary always had to organize somehow chewing gum, which was not that popular at the time in Germany. <laughs> so these were all American things which Lubitsch appreciated. And it was very clear to him that he wanted to go to America and to have this experience and I think he never thought about going back to Germany. He even began learning English quite rigorously at this time. So he was clearly planning. And he was asking for American citizenship, I think, already in 1923, very early. It was long before the Nazis came and so on. But it was clear for him. He didn't leave Germany because he had discrimination or that he felt insecure because of being a Jew. He wanted to go to America and he liked his American way of life in a way. But he himself always claimed that he is German and that he will not lose his German approach and his German culture. This he said in some of the interviews. Mm -hmm. Even before he left Germany, he said that he will always be a German. That's fascinating. Out of many of the German directors who emigrated to Hollywood, he's often seen as one of the ones who most threw himself into American culture, right? He was known for not looking down on Americans and American culture, as some of his other colleagues did. There's stories of other directors who never felt quite at home there. And Lubitsch seems to have, despite keeping his identity as a German, really felt at home in Hollywood. Do you know the trailer for Shop Around the Corner? I think it is now on the Blu-ray. Yes, I love that trailer. That's Before watching it, I had no idea anyone did this before Hitchcock, but in the trailer for Shop Around the Corner, Lubitsch appears introduced by Frank Morgan. Yes, I, I liked it always. I always had a print of it. And so now it is available on the Blu-ray, fortunately, because I like it how Lubitsch presents himself. Mm -hmm. There were other directors. It was not Hitchcock who invented it. It was C.C.B. DeMille, Otto Preminger. Oh, interesting. They all showed up in their trailers. And the one who did it most was the biggest showman. I don't know if you know his name, William Castle. Mm-hmm. And Hitchcock stole the idea more from William Castle. <laughs> when Hitchcock did his Psycho trailer, the first trailer in which he showed up personally, this Psycho was very much to his television work and was very close to William Castle. He was a missing link to the old Hollywood. In the old Hollywood, these were only the big directors who wanted to do a cult around them, as Hitchcock did, and Cecil B. DeMille did, and Lubitsch was one of the first. And the people went into a Lubitsch film, not into a Claudette Colbert film. It was a Lubitsch film. Mm -hmm. He put the name of the director over the film. And this is, for me, the amazing thing. 
how we succeeded in it in the mid-20s already that the people were talking about the Lubitsch film. It's interesting to me, there's this often remarked upon irony, right, where Lubitsch was an early success, an early American director who had a brand, right? People knew him. He was in the trailer. He had the Lubitsch touch. People saw him, as you say, because of his films. And yet he has so severely fallen off in recognition since his death. And I've heard many, many different accounts of this, why he was known for comedies, wasn't taken as seriously. He died before the Kaihes people could get to him, you know, all that sort of thing. Do you have a theory of the case of this? How did Lubitsch go from being, he was name dropped in Sullivan's Travels. Veronica Lake does not have to explain who Lubitsch is. She says, I want to work with Lubitsch. That's a joke in that movie. And it works because everyone would have known who he was. Why has he fallen so far out of the consciousness? I think that Lubitsch understood what cinema is and that it is something completely different from theater in a time when not many people understood it. And he wanted always to improve himself. And he was always open-minded to do new things. It was not afraid at all. I'm always astonished. Why the hell did he go to America? It was a quite risky thing, but he had not the slightest doubt that he could succeed going to America. And it was not that easy in a complete different culture, which he had very little knowledge about. But he was clever. He was quick. He could understand the situation. He was witty. I don't know. It's also unbelievable that he could shoot four or seven films in a year in his German period. And these were not bad films. Mm. These were good films, innovative films, very different genre. He was always editing them himself. There are interesting battles he had, like with Asta Nielsen, the big Danish film star who was dominating the European cinema in the teens. And Lubitsch was shooting this year. And so they sent letters, public letters to each other. And you can see that Asta Nielsen, who did also great films, but she was more coming from the stage. Mm -hmm. And she kept this note. When she shot her own films, she had to be in the image. It's a little bit like Chaplin. You compare Chaplin to Buster Keaton. Buster Keaton is also the much more modern filmmaker. That is the reason why he is still so popular. And I think maybe even will become one day more popular than Chaplin. Chaplin is a clown. You put the camera in front of him, he's standing in the center and then he's performing. He's doing his things. He's very good in it. Buster Keaton is a filmic author. He doesn't have to be in the center. He has a knowledge of film construction. He can put other things in the center of the image. And he has a feeling for rhythm, for storytelling, and so on. And I think the same you have with Lubitsch. That is the reason why the Lubitsch films are so good. The editing, it is far superior to most of the other German films of the time. Mm -hmm. Even in the reviews, some of the critics are saying, why is it edited so quickly? Because Lubitsch edited it and he made it as short as possible. Mm -hmm. I did Orson Welles. In my collection here in Munich, we have all the unfinished Orson Welles films. And when I studied the work prints of Orson Welles, you can see that each time when he was at the editing table, he cut the film shorter, <laughs> shorter, shorter. And sometimes he even went over the point. Then he glued back the single frame <laughs> with splices back into the shot, but he tried it out because he wanted to go to the most extreme. And I think it was Lubitsch also. He knew exactly how to use the editing. And it was his idea of poetic film to have a dialogue of two characters in front of the camera without any intertitle and only with looks and smiles and editing telling you what is going on. And this was his ideal. And this is very modern. Mm -hmm. And you see today, a really good filmmaker tries to tell the story visually and not just through dialogue. For someone who, again, was so influential, made so many films, was clearly such a public figure, he isn't really seen nowadays by, let's say, the movie-going public. I would say that Chaplin, Keaton, Hitchcock, Ford, Wells, Lang, the list goes on. Those are all directors who you hear about them nowadays. They're spoken of frequently in various contexts, film schools, etc. But for example, just even my own experience being a random Canadian, the word Lubitsch was never mentioned once in my entire film schooling career, right? Really? Yeah, which doesn't speak well to it. You know, I'll never forgive them. But at least in North America, Lubitsch has kind of fallen. I mean, I think he fell probably in the mid-century out of the conversation and never really came back. 
right? He's still the figure you learn after you learn all the big ones. And you go, how did I miss this? Does anything account for that, I wonder? I have no idea. For me, Lubitsch was always one of the great. Mm. These are these very individualistic directors. Mm -hmm. Max Offitz or Orson Welles, these are for me the really great directors. I think Hawks of Ford, of course, I also like them. But they are maybe even a little boring. It's difficult <laughs> to say Ford did so many great films, of course, but they are not so unexpected like the others. Mm -hmm. They are more whirlwinds. You don't know exactly. They tried out a little more than John Ford would have done. Ford is great. I personally prefer Hawks to Ford, but mm -hmm. this is only a question of taste, I think. Both are great. As a cinematographer, I think I'm predisposed to love Ford because he's so pictorially beautiful. You watch any of his Technicolor or Vistavision stuff and it's like, oh my gosh. Definitely. Maybe yeah, in Europe, we have more this theory that we take these filmmakers and especially the ones who switched between the cultures more seriously or more important than you do it. Mm -hmm. Of course, Ford and Hawks are very American. They lived always in America. Mm -hmm. It's shot also in Africa, Hatari, which is one of my films I like very much, or in Ireland, or what's on. But nevertheless, they are very American. And here, these directors I mentioned, they were always switching between the culture. And here, even some people thought that Orson Welles is a European who went to America. <laughs> they are always surprised that he is an American who then in his later years stayed in Europe. This didn't happen that much. It happened only to the studio directors in the late 60s when they went to Europe because they could shoot cheaper here. Nicholas Ray and others came over. Mm -hmm. uh, well, it's interesting to see it also from this perspective, that this is a European and an American perspective on these things. For us, Lubitsch was always great. They are the great German silent film directors, and they are always rediscovered every 20 years. It starts always with Fritz Lang, then it goes to Murnau, <laughs> Pabst, and Lubitsch. Then it starts again. Yeah, it's that cycle. There's always rediscovery. And the most problematic is always Pabst, who was in emigration and came back into Nazi Germany. Mm. And then he didn't do that good films anymore. So he is always the most mysterious of the three. I have to say that his talk was now so much floating around <laughs> yeah. that we didn't talk that much about the flame. It is difficult because the film is incomplete. Mm -hmm. We cannot talk to it like a normal film. I don't think that there is something essential which has to be said. For me, the thought is important that Lubitsch is not just a comedy director, that Lubitsch wanted to be a serious director and that you can make a line between the serious films. And for me, the amazing talent of Lubitsch is also showing you when you see a love of Pharaoh shot in seven months outside of the studio, a lavish production, and then shooting The Flame, a studio production with few characters, completely different. This shows the two ends of what Lubitsch could do. And both are Lubitsch films. And both are somehow typical for Lubitsch. This, I think, is interesting as a thought. And I think we should be careful to put him into a certain category. He was quite universal. I think that's a great sentiment to end this season on. If there's a thesis to the Berlin seasons of this podcast, it's that at this point, Lubitsch was going in an absurd number of directions, right? You have the gingerbread house, maximalist comedy of Wildcat. You have the first lo-fi film I've ever seen in The Doll. You have numerous opulent historical epics. You have the Ruritanian comedy in The Oyster Princess. And you have films like The Flum, which is a small chamber piece camera spiel, as you put it. And so this image we have of Lubitsch as an artist is really problematized and given depth and nuance by this era in his career where he made over half his movies, right? Over half his movies were made in Berlin. And it's just an artist who is unsettled and experimenting and it's lovely. I've so enjoyed recording these 20 episodes now. Oh boy. <laughs> For me, one of the most astonishing films is A Man I Killed. To do a peaceful film in 1932 is absolutely amazing in this situation. Mm -hmm. And I think it's one of the most underrated movies he did. There was now a remake in France, <laughs> which is also pretty good. Yeah, the Ozone, right? 
this Lubitsch film got a little more attention, but before, hardly anybody had seen it and nobody would put it on the list of the great Lubitsch films. Everybody would put some comedies first mm -hmm. and I would put some of his serious films. I think they need much more attention to understand Lubitsch. Mm -hmm. What you can sound about Munich Film Museum, <laughs> about my work, we mentioned these articles I have written in film history about Jehefa. We have restored many films and we released them on DVD. So about 100 DVDs are out with our film restorations or reconstructions. Mm -hmm. And I'm quite proud on some of these reconstructions. And I think you can find them when you look in the internet. A lot of pirate copies are floating <laughs> around, uh, but you can also buy the official DVDs. Pubs, as an example, his great masterpiece, his second film is A Joyless Street film with Greta Garbo and Asta Nielsen in it. And it is the most censored film of all times. Hmm. And it is also only a reconstruction and still missing about 25 minutes. These are the things I like to work on. And I hope one day it will be possible to do something with the Patriot. Because this seems to be also one of the great things of Lubitsch, where we really have to regret that not much more is known. I'm so curious about The Patriot because I'm actually planning on recording an episode about it because you brought it up. I would love to know any information you have about that film and if there's any materials I can study up on before that episode because that episode truly is going to be about a movie that is inaccessible, one that doesn't even have a reconstruction. I have a print of the existing five minutes. Oh my gosh. There are five minutes which were found in Portugal and it shows a very fluid camera. The other things which exist of this film is a trailer, which is one of these treasures DVD. Yeah. And you can see very little bits in one of the Sternberg films. This may be responsible that the film was destroyed because he used some of the shots for, I think, the Scarlet Empress. But I really looked for it. And then I found one the cue sheet where I can see which musical pieces were played. The problem is really with the stilts, because all the stilts only show Emil Jannings. Mm. And with these stilts, you cannot tell the story. I have, of course, the programs from the period, so I can know the storyline. But I didn't find any screenplay or continuity script, this would be necessary. Then I maybe could put the photos in a certain order and try to tell the storyline. Mm -hmm. So far, I think with these elements, you cannot do a reconstruction. But I still hope and I think a screenplay <laughs> or something should show up one day somewhere in a collection. And of course, I cannot permanently control all the universities and archives and so on. So I say it here in the hope that one day somebody will shout. Mm -hmm. Why are you saying there is no script available? We have it in our collection for <laughs> hundreds of years. Right? <laughs> you should have asked us. But I don't know who I should ask. I have these five minutes in my office. It was funny when I got it as a personal gift once. Mm -hmm. When I was in Lisbon and did a lecture about Werner Schröter, the films I restored, and then the director of the institution told me, Stefan, Stefan, <laughs> I know you love Lubitsch. We have a gift for you. And then he gave me a little package. I'm not allowed to open it now. And uh, they just found it. Oh my gosh, that's incredible. So I was totally surprised but it doesn't help much it only shows you the very fluid camera and it is a silent version because in europe the film was released silently mm -hmm. while in america it had some sound parts in it as you can see in the trailer mm -hmm. thank you so much for coming on the show so i'm very interested to see how you will edit <laughs> i think it needs some talent to edit it together to get a structure in it I'm sometimes talking too much, I know. Oh, it's talking too much is the nature of this podcast. I mean, why else would we do a whole episode on a film where only... This episode is five times longer than the, uh, than the part of the film that remains. Yeah. <laughs> well, Ernst has set sail for Hollywood, and that means season two, and with it, the Berlin period of our podcast is over. I would like to thank all the guests who lent their time and support to the show. Lucy Marzola, Jamie Rebinal, Tim Brayton, David Cairns, Maddie Whittle, Paul Cuff, times two, 
Bram Reuter, Will Ross, Kristen Thompson, and Stefan Droisler. Our editors, Griffin Scheel and Gloria Mercer. All the people who lent valuable counsel and support. Anna Shitek Scott, Dave Kerr, The MoMA, Jose Arroyo, Matt Severson, and the Margaret Herrick Library, as well as many, many others. And you listening to this. Thank you for making it this far. I look forward to returning in July when we rejoin Ernst in Hollywood. How Would Lubitsch Do It is a production of Moving Image Agency. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review us on whatever podcast service you happen to use. We'd like to acknowledge that this podcast was produced on the unceded territory of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh peoples.